This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The healthier you are when you enter menopause, the less likely you are to have the severe symptoms and the less likely you are to have as many symptoms. And it just makes sense. If your cardiovascular system, your nervous system, and bones are healthier at the beginning, they should be healthier as you go through. Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. Today, we'll learn about managing menopause naturally. We'll find out about the treatment of frozen shoulders. We'll discuss the health benefits of yoga nidra. And lastly, we'll talk all about umami. But first, a little bit of business. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy, enjoy the detox, enjoy the great taste. Purely natural, liquid greens. Joel Thuna is a master herbalist and general manager at Purely Natural. He strives to improve the quality of natural products in the market and passes along his knowledge of herbal remedies through lectures and articles. Joel is a regular contributor to Tonic Magazine and also a regular contributor to this show. Welcome back, sir. How are you? I'm doing wonderful on this almost spring day, and I hope everyone else is also. I'm sure we are. We're all coming out of hibernation. And I want to say we missed the mark by a few days, but that's only because we're on Saturdays and Sundays. It was International Women's Day this week, and we're going to cover women's health issue today, and that is menopause. So what is menopause and when does it occur? Well, let's get it out there, right out in the open. Menopause is a natural process. Every, and I do mean every woman, will experience menopause in some way. Normally between the ages of 45 and 55, the average is around 51 years old. But the big thing is it's not a condition. It's not a disease. It's a natural biological process, and it shouldn't be feared. It shouldn't be stigmatized. It just is. Now, what literally is menopause? Because it has to do with a woman's hormones, correct? Correct. At around age 50, every woman's ovaries will stop producing the female hormone estrogen. This is tracked with the end of the menstrual cycle and periods. Menopause is formally diagnosed in a medical term after you've gone 12 consecutive months without a menstrual period. And what happens is this causes the levels of estrogen in your blood, not surprisingly, to drop dramatically. There is still some estrogen being produced by your body, just not nearly at the same levels. And estrogen is a vital hormone that plays various roles in a lot of parts of your body. In women specifically, it helps develop and maintain both the reproductive system and female characteristics, such as breasts and pubic hair. But its lesser-known actions are the ones that really are important during menopause, which are in the areas of cognitive health, bone health, and cardiovascular health. Right. 
that's where health issues can arise. We'll come to that. But I think maybe we should just, for those who don't know, and, and a lot of what people think of as the symptoms of menopause are actually the symptoms of perimenopause, which is the process of entering into the state of menopause. But those symptoms are? Those are hot flashes, depression, vaginal dryness, irritability, anxiety, and other problems. Now, historically, when women went through menopause, doctors would recommend hormone replacement therapy. Is that still viable? Some doctors still do, but hormone replacement therapy, also known as HRT, was very, very popular throughout the the end of the last century. And what it did was it actually did replace the lost hormones with hormones that were extruded from pregnant horse urine. And it was a standard treatment for decades. But what happened in May 2002, that all changed. There was a long-term study called the Women's Health Initiative Study. And what it did is it studied what happened to women's bodies who took hormone replacement therapy. And what ended up happening, this long-term study was stopped dead cold three years early because they found that HRT, hormone replacement therapy, increased the risk of breast cancer, heart disease, stroke, and blood clots in both leg veins and lungs to a level that far eclipsed any, and I do mean any, of the therapy's benefits. Overnight, prescription fills and the production of hormone replacement drugs dropped dramatically. But there are still some doctors who who prescribe it, though. There are some And for the most part, those that do are doing it for very specialized patients, not for ones that have minor issues or just annoyances, but ones who they actually do need it because without it, the dangers even exceed those that were found for women taking hormone replacement therapy. Okay, let's discuss a more natural approach to menopause. And when I say menopause, I really mean the symptoms of menopause because you can't treat menopause, but we can perhaps alleviate some of the associated symptoms. Yes. Now, the, the biggest thing is, and I know I'm preaching to the converted if they're listening to this, is that the healthier you are when you enter menopause, the less likely you are to have the severe symptoms and the less likely you are to have as many symptoms. And it just makes sense. If your cardiovascular system, your nervous system, and bones are healthier at the beginning, they should be healthier as you go through. Right. And your diet and activity level really matter here. It's been found in cultures that have a mostly plant-based diet. They tend to have fewer and less severe symptoms of menopause, as do those that exercise more. So if you have a cruddy diet and you're sedentary, the odds are menopause is going to be a worse ride for you. But those are, those are easy fixes, right? I mean, you know, for some, if you like your crappy food, you like your crappy food. But, <laughs> you know, being a little bit more active and eating healthier are certainly within everybody's wheelhouse if, if they're so inclined, right? Oh, definitely. And we're not talking that you go out there. When I say exercise, I'm not talking to go out and start pumping iron. Right. I'm, I'm saying just Get up and move. Try and do your walking, your gardening, although not right now, (laughs) wrong time of year. But just get moving and get the blood moving through your body and occasionally work up a little sweat. Mm -hmm. If you can handle more, great. But at the same time, don't overexert yourself. You don't want to do that. 
And I know we're going to speak about specific issues and specific symptoms, but generally, are there supplements that people should consider taking as they're approaching menopause? Definitely. The, the big ones for me are vitamins D, and it can be D2 or D3, which are the two forms, and vitamin K2. Oh, we're back to K2 again. Oh, I told you I'm enamored by it. You are. Both vitamin D and K2 affect so many body systems that they play a vital role in everyone's health, but they can be a strong foundation for menopausal health. They help with everything such as mood to heart health, bone health. Don't minimize the role these two play. And the nice thing is they're so easy to take. Because they're fat-based, they're oil-based, make sure you want to get your D and K2 together in oil-based liquid drops. And you don't have to take a ton of them. Most products, you're only talking maybe one to four or five drops a day. It's not a massive commitment. That sounds great. Let's turn our attention to some of the symptomology that is around and associated with menopause. So let's start with hot flashes. What are they and how can they be treated? Hot flashes are the big one that uh, is pushed and shown a great deal in movies and television shows as being the big thing that has to do with menopause. Well, hot flashes, in some cultures they're called flushes, can range from being mildly annoying, usually when they're mild and rare, to life-changing when they're frequent and severe. They can lead to insomnia, sleep disruption, and sometimes feelings of frustration and hopelessness. While the mechanism behind them isn't completely understood, experts believe that hot flashes originate in the brain and are caused by the dysregulation of temperature control mechanisms in the hypothalamus. Essentially what happens is your body says, hey, we need a little more heat in here. And normally what would happen is if it were before menopause, Estrogen would go, oh, no, we have enough estrogen. We don't need the furnace on high. But because you don't have enough estrogen there, the furnace just keeps on high for a little while. Got it. And there are some supplements that are used to alleviate hot flashes. Some studies have shown that you have black cohosh root, vitamin B12, natural vitamin E, not synthetic, donkwe root, vitex, maca, and even sage, yes, the spice sage, but in highly concentrated form can help most people. Evidence is also emerging about my favorite one, vitamin K2. Hmm. K2 has been shown to reduce the intensity of flashes along with night sweats and disturbed sleep that are experienced by a lot of women. And that, what ends up happening is when you're sleeping, if you get a hot flash, it causes night sweats, wakes you up. And the problem is that can end up being a vicious cycle because not having enough sleep means you don't get enough rest which means you can't handle menopause. Right. And, it, and vicious cycles are nasty. A big thing, though, with hot flashes is to avoid common triggers. There are certain things and certain items that happen that frequently cause hot flashes in those susceptible to them. And those are emotionally stressful situations, smoking, alcohol, and excessively spicy foods. Also, you want to make sure you avoid supplements that can turn the heat up, those being niacin, although you can find what's called non-flush niacin that doesn't do that, and also Asian ginseng. Those are your Chinese, your Korean ginsengs, and intense spices, those being capsicum, turmeric, and ginger. Okay. 
Now, some women experience dryness as a result of menopause. What's the cause of that, and, and can it be naturally treated? Yes, it actually can. Dryness and irritation normally are a result of a massive reduction in blood flow in the vaginal area. And what ends up happening is this causes the tissue just to not be as healthy as it was beforehand. The dryness and irritation happen, and the big issue there is bacterial infections can pass from that region to the urinary tract. Mm. And that UTIs are nasty any age to anyone. And the big thing with this is it can make life anywhere from uncomfortable to just downright painful, especially sex. That, that can be dramatically painful, and that, that's a serious problem. Now, many people are surprised that one of the simplest things to help fix, not a full fix, but to help fix with this, is to dramatically increase your intake of water. Mm-hmm. Studies have found that as we age, we tend to reduce our intake of water, even though our requirements for it actually, to some degree, increase. So drinking at least 10 eight-ounce glasses of water a day has been found to be helpful. Staying hydrated can be surprisingly helpful, not just there, but also can improve your health in many other ways at the same time. Now, the other thing you can do is using a vaginal moisturizer. And these are special moisturizers that are designed specifically for this sensitive area of your body, taking into account the specialized pH of the vaginal region. Now, you can use it every couple of days to, to moisten that area and relieve the dryness. But be very careful. Do not use moisturizers that are not designed for that area because the pH will be completely wrong and you may end up irritating the tissue, which just puts you back even further behind where you were. The other thing is you want to avoid using scented soaps, scented moisturizers, or other items that can irritate that tissue. How do the hormonal changes affect mood? Well, as anyone who's been around or has pubescent teenagers know, mood is dramatically affected by hormones. Yep. (laughs) What, What ends up happening as your hormones change, you can find yourself feeling uncharacteristically nervous, depressed, and even having memory issues. Sometimes these cause strained relationships, and that's when it gets pretty tense. Yep. And the, the good news is when it comes to the hormonal changes affecting mood in menopause, the vast majority of these changes resolve themselves and will have you back to your normal self. It just takes some time. Mm-hmm. Now, if there's anything that has to do with depression, anxiety, irritability, or memory lapses, you want to talk to your doctor. Yeah. The reason you do is you want to make sure it's from the menopause, and indeed it is temporary, and not due to anything else. Now, while you're going through these, ensure you're taking those two vitamins we talked about earlier, the vitamin D and K2. Mm-hmm. They'll help keep those symptoms in check. Also, try and keep a regular sleep schedule and also do regular exercise to keep your emotional status stable. If you can, try meditation and yoga. They've been found to be quite effective at both relieving stress as well as anxiety irritability while improving your mood. Fantastic. We have time for one last question, and that is, is there a connection between menopause and bone density? A rather striking one. 
they found that what happens is low estrogen levels end up messing with the balance between bone absorption and regeneration. Absorption is where your bones are actually slowly ripped apart, and regeneration is where they're built up. And this is the system that happens throughout our lives to help keep bone tissue healthy. And what they found is low estrogen levels actually leads to where absorption or the breaking apart of bone far exceeds the level of regeneration. And together, those two things cause rapid bone loss and sometimes critical loss. That's why women who, who are menopausal are at a much greater risk of developing osteoporosis, leading to bone fractures and long-term mobility issues. Now, what they found is by moving to a mostly plant-based diet helps reduce bone loss. For some reason, when we eat animal products and byproducts, the excretion of calcium increases. The easiest way to slow this is eat more veggies and less meat. But while we're talking about calcium, yes, take calcium, but ensure you're taking the right form of calcium. Choose an organic form because they're better absorbed that is combined with other minerals needed for bone health. I suggest a calcium-potassium-phosphorus complex. And the reason it's important is it has all three vital bone minerals bound together in one easy-to-absorb organic molecule. Now, to help that calcium and the other minerals get absorbed and get into bones, again, you want to ensure you're taking your vitamins D and K2. D helps increase the mineral absorption from your gut, while K2 ensures the minerals end up in your bones and not in other places you don't want them, like your arteries. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Always my pleasure. Always. That was Joel Thuna. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss the treatment of frozen shoulders on the tonic. Valentine's Day isn't the only time to think about your heart. Over 2.4 million Canadians are affected by heart disease. Symptoms such as shortness of breath, chest pains, discomfort in your arms, back, neck, or jaw are not to be ignored. Seeking medical assistance is always the safest choice. It could save your life. Don't die of doubt. Don't hesitate. Follow your heart and call 911 at the first sign of heart attack or stroke. Medtronic Canada is committed to alleviating pain, restoring health, and extending life for patients with heart disease. You're a genuine health enthusiast listening to this show today. And Activation Products is your dream come true when it comes to living a very long, pain-free, energized life. Your body's craving heirloom nano and micronutrients that you'll use to elevate your whole body's health in ways you had no idea were possible. Activation makes all this possible no matter how old or young you are. The precious time, energy, and money you invest to be healthy is taken very seriously by Activation. It's their responsibility to deliver to you the most efficacious health products available in the world today. People consistently report back the most beautiful health results when they daily consume products from Activation. Treat yourself now and find out what it's like to live in a luxurious body, making every day a joy to be alive. Go to activationproducts.com and subscribe for the most important health information and products. Or call 1-866-271-7595. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Dr. Aaron Boynton, or Dr. B, is an orthopedic surgeon with a unique approach to musculoskeletal pain, blending both the art and science of medicine. 
As the first female orthopedic surgeon to work in the MLB and NHL, she has had extensive experience in dealing with overuse or wear and tear injuries. Welcome back to the show, doctor. How are you? I'm doing great, Jamie. How are you doing? I'm doing really well today. And and you pitched me with this this topic and candidly, like I know I'm supposed to know everything and I frequently <laughs> pretend like I do, but I've never heard of a frozen shoulder. So I presume it's not like a frozen dinner. So tell us what it is. <laughs> well, it is one of the most challenging problems that I deal with as an orthopedic surgeon. So a frozen shoulder is also known as adhesive capsulitis. And it's a disease where the shoulder becomes incredibly painful and stiff and affects women more commonly than men. And we don't really understand why it happens, and that's one of the biggest problems in managing it. Uh, But it does tend to happen more frequently in people who suffer from diabetes or thyroid disorders. But it can also happen after a trauma, you know, you fall and land awkwardly on your arm, or after surgery. And I really see people that suffer terribly with this. And so I wanted to talk with you about this to share some of my tips on how to manage it. Okay, so when you mentioned thyroid and diabetes, it suggests to me that people perhaps carrying extra weight may suffer from this. Is that the case? I'm not sure if it's so much the weight, but it could be the underlying autoimmune or auto, uh, uh, like a, an underlying inflammatory problem that we don't completely understand why it specifically affects the shoulder. Patients who have diabetes and some thyroid problems tend to be more susceptible to underlying inflammation. So can you give us sort of like a a graphic description of, of where the pain would be and what it would feel like so people might understand, like, not that we're encouraging self-diagnosis, but get an idea of what a frozen shoulder feels like? Sure. And and one of the problems that I do see is that a frozen shoulder is the great masquerader. So a lot of times people go to the doctor and the doctor says, oh, you've got rotator cuff tendonitis or Uh. impingement. They go to the physical therapist and they, you know, they think they have this impingement. And, And what often happens is that as the shoulder is getting stiffer, the therapist is really trying hard to make it better for the patient and they push harder on the arm and then the arm actually gets more painful and more stiff and it's a challenge. So the difference that I see in patients who have a frozen shoulder versus a typical rotator cuff tendonitis is that the pain is First of all, it's unrelenting. It's deep inside the shoulder, and it radiates down the arm below the elbow. So most rotator cuff pain won't go below the elbow, but frozen shoulder pain tends to go down into the forearm and the hand, and sometimes there's numbness and tingling in the arm associated with it. And this is highly unusual with rotator cuff pathology. And I think this happens because of the inflammation in the capsule of the shoulder that's kind of like a shirt sleeve. So when your arm is at your side, the capsule's loose and baggy, and the capsule's where the inflammation is. And then right beside the capsule are all the nerves that supply our arm. So I think these nerves get really aggravated by the inflammation and and cause these ridiculous pains. And the other thing that that is a hallmark is loss of rotation. So if you put your elbow at your side and you try to rotate your arm out, there's just no rotation there. So that is how I differentiate a frozen shoulder from a typical tendonitis. If someone unfortunately had a frozen shoulder, what's the fastest way you could get better? (laughs) Well, this is the big problem. Everyone wants it to be fast. Yeah, sure. The problem is is it's a disease that goes through a phase where you have the initial sort of pain and stiffness, the shoulder actually freezes it hits a peak of pain and stiffness, and then it starts to thaw. 
and the pain burns out and you're left with a stiff shoulder and then the range of motion comes back. But we can't kind of force it and make it happen quickly. It's kind of like being in this COVID pandemic. It's like, you know, we wish that we could just like get out of lockdown quickly and we can't. So what I recommend and I think is most helpful for people is the first thing is that you understand that it's going to go away. It's going to get better. So 95% of people with a frozen shoulder will get better. We just don't know whether it's going to be in four months, nine months, or up to two years. Yikes. And I think that the people that understand that it's going to get better, first of all, emotionally they relax. I ask them to use some deep breathing and mindfulness to help manage the pain. But also treat your shoulder kindly. Don't force it. You know, if you know that it's going to hurt to try and carry something or to move your arm in a certain position, then don't do it for a while because your shoulder's just going to complain. Isn't that the old joke? Doctor, it hurts when I do this. Okay, don't do that, right? (laughs) Well, absolutely. And it's so true here in this case because, you know, often you'll get like a therapist wrenching on the arm trying to make it get better. And then actually I think what happens is that you tear some of the capsule, which creates bleeding and inflammation, which actually can make it worse. And so just letting it go through the initial phase of freezing and try to keep what you've got. And this, I think, is really a key. By stretching it yourself, you can just hang over and do a pendulum. Hot water in the shower is really helpful. Putting a heating pad on it at night. And then activating the muscles around your shoulder is really helpful. So we call these isometric contractions. Mm -hmm. So you're not moving your arm, but you're just sitting and you'll push your elbow out against your hand or you can squeeze your hands together in front of you so that you're turning the muscles on around your shoulder without motion really helps with the pain. I gather, considering that it's for most people it goes away, that surgery really doesn't make sense. Surgery is not helpful. I have done some surgery, but I'll make people wait the two years because we know that it can get better up to two years. And this is one of the hardest things about figuring out what the best treatment is because the time frame for resolution is so variable. You don't know if what you've done has actually made a difference or if the person was just going to get better on their own. But in the, in the olden days, we used to do this. I think it's a rather horrific thing. It's called a manipulation under an anesthesia. So the person with the frozen shoulder would be taken to the operating room. They'd be given a general anesthetic, and then the surgeon would actually tear the capsule. And the patient would have perfect range of motion in the operating room, but then six weeks later, they'd be back to where they were. And so the difference, though, if someone needs the arthroscopy to release the tissue and they just aren't getting better and you've given them the two years and they're doing everything right, the advantage of the surgical procedure is it's very controlled. You control the bleeding, you know exactly where you're removing the tissue, and we we have a very good understanding of where we need to release the capsule in order to regain the range of motion. So there's not as much inflammation, and people will gain some range for sure. So there there is a benefit for those who are really, really stuck at, at the two-year mark. Okay. But you, you, you wouldn't do surgery in advance of the two years, even though it does provide relief? No, I wouldn't. And, and you really have to be cognizant of what phase of the disease you're in. So if you operate on somebody when they're in that initial phase where they're freezing yeah. and there's loads of inflammation, you'll go in, you do the surgery, and you may have a very temporary effect because you've kind of washed a lot of 
the inflammatory mediators out of the joint, but it's not likely to be helpful. So no, you're, you're right there. I would not recommend it at all. So, you know, on the show, we've had other people come in and talk about sort of nutraceuticals and pharmaceuticals you can take to reduce inflammation. Are you an advocate for that? Definitely fish oils, uh, anti-inflammatory diet. If you're a diabetic, keeping really good control of your of your sugars. I'm a big believer in that. I'm. I don't have one product that I particularly yeah. use, but I'm a very big believer in the principle. And it sounds to me like a lot of the treatment would really be about pain management. So, where do you stand on cortisone shots for for a frozen shoulder? You know, they can be really beneficial in that first phase, a shot right into the joint itself where the inflammation is. It can cause the disease process to flip from the freezing to the thawing phase. It's not going to give you an immediate range of motion because the tissue in the capsule is not very elastic and you have to give that time to remodel. But it can definitely deal with that horrible pain that's really, really hard on people emotionally. And a cortisone shot, should relieve pain for what? A matter of weeks or months, typically? It can actually really just cause the whole disease to flip into that thawing phase where the pain burns out. So it's, it's an interesting thing I've seen. It's not 100% effective. Yep. Some people only get a few weeks pain relief, but I've seen a significant number of people get benefit that if someone were to come to me with this problem, I would definitely offer a cortisone injection into the joint. And I'm not a huge proponent of just giving cortisone. I know that. Okay. I know that from our previous interviews. That's So it's, it's interesting yeah. to hear. We have time for one last question, and that is, I know you work in your office with physical therapists. Is a frozen shoulder the type of injury that would benefit from physical therapy? Most definitely during the right phase and with a knowledgeable therapist. The therapist has to recognize that if you're in the freezing phase, they can't be pushing and trying to force range of motion because it'll just create more pain. But once the pain is burned out and the shoulder's thawing, then the therapist can help to improve the pliability of the tissue capsule. And I find acupuncture is very beneficial. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I know that next time we speak next month, you have something that's near and dear to you. What are we going to talk about next month? Oh, yes. Thank you so much, Jamie. This is something I'm incredibly passionate about, and it's uh, gender and diversity within the orthopedic profession, dealing not only with the professionals, but patients. So I would love to have the opportunity to chat with you and what we're doing to help improve this situation. Fantastic. I look forward to it. That was Dr. Aaron Boynton. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Jack Nathan Health offers Canadians convenient care with 74 multidisciplinary clinics located within Walmart stores. The largest ever Jack Nathan Health Medical Center is now open in Vaughan, Ontario at 8300 Highway 27. 
The new 8,300-square-foot clinic offers integrated services for the whole family, including family medicine, physiotherapy, and chiropractic, chronic pain management, massage, and a registered dietitian. There's also an on-site Dynacare blood laboratory, plus same-day referrals, walk-in appointments, and a new annual health assessment option. Jack Nathan Health is a one-stop shop for proactive health management. For more information, visit jacknathanhealth.com. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. My next guest, Sari Nisker-Fox, is a Toronto-based mama of two gals. She's a yoga and mindfulness teacher for almost 20 years, a life coach, speaker, and entrepreneur. She's co-founder of The Yoga Weekend and a wellness advocate. Sari loves building community and inspiring self-care through movement and mindset practices. For more information about Sari, you can visit sarifox.com. Welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. So in the latest issue of Tonic Magazine, you wrote a great article about Yoga Nidra, and I thought, why not bring her on the show and have her tell us all about it? You up for it? I'm up for it. So let's, do it. let's start at the beginning. What is Yoga Nidra? Well, first of all, thank you so much for bringing me on to talk about Yoga Nidra. It is a practice that we all can benefit from, especially right now. So Yoga Nidra is a meditative practice, but it also offers the opportunity for an abundant amount of relaxation and reworking of all the internal systems, if you will. Okay, so this is a little bit different than the more vigorous types of yoga, which, you know, work your muscles and your mind. This is more about Mm -hmm. helping your internal self, right? Your internal self, but the real special thing about yoga nidra that is different from a physical practice of yoga or a meditation is that it's actually all-encompassing. So you receive the benefits physiologically, meaning that you downgrade your your nervous system, digestive systems, all of the systems that, you know, are perhaps inflamed, exacerbated, you know, not functioning. It is a wash, if you will, of the mind. So it is as if you are putting all of your mind, like your mind and your patterns, your stories, your narratives, it offers this opportunity for your subconscious to almost go through the dishwasher. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, all right. Well, you know, my internal systems are a little bit dirty and maybe I could use yeah. a wash. So there you go. Wonderful. <laughs> it's a real beautiful practice that I believe is underestimated, underutilized, and not really taught. I mean, our culture, you know, highlights the physical yoga practice, you know, that naturally is what most are attracted to when first entering the the yoga realm. But Yoga Nidra offers a meditative experience, but it is a guided meditative experience, meaning that you're not as, you don't have as much space to think, right? So, you know, I can lead myself through a yoga nidra practice that is much more efficient if you are guided through an entire practice where the cues are given to you rather succinctly, but in a really slow, beautiful pace. So you're able to follow along and utilize different parts of you. So I've never done it actually. So what do you do? Walk us through it. Sure, absolutely. So the beautiful thing about Yoga Nidra is that it is one practice that is really accessible to all. Most of the time, the Yoga Nidra is done lying down in a real comfy position. I personally love doing Yoga Nidra on my bed, but you can lie down on a yoga mat, you can lie down on the couch. 
however you get yourself in a real comfortable and steady position. There's a few cornerstones to Yoga Nidra that makes it really rich. The first part of it generally, and I'm just generalizing a Yoga Nidra practice, Mm -hmm. which can be anywhere from 10 to 15 minutes to 60 minutes, just depending on, you know, what is accessible to you and what you are really looking for. So it starts out with, you know, a general, I guess, bridge into the body. So becoming present to what is. And for a lot of us, you know, our minds are running so wild that we need this bridge to become present and get present in the body. So you can think of it as a body scan. Mm -hmm. So from the top of the head right down to to your toes, the guided voice would walk you through relaxing the right side of the body and the left side of the body, specifically every single body part. And most yoga nidra practices, if done, you know, at length, there's about between like 65 and 72 body parts named. And there's this monotony to it that helps you to really become meditative and move you from your thinking mind and more into this place where you are in your subconscious, you can relax, and there's this opening, this real opening to just move into the body. So you don't need to have any sort of particular skills or physical endowments or, or, or really anything to do this. It's for everybody, right? For everybody. You need an iPhone. You need to find a voice that you like <laughs> to find. You can go on YouTube and search Yoga Nidra and um, there's multiple practices. And actually writing an article for you about Yoga Nidra actually inspired me to begin to record my own Yoga Nidra practices for families. Oh, that's really um, cool. Yes. So can people access those? They will be able to very soon. I am just working on it now that my kids have gone back to school <laughs> and they are doing in-person learning. Right. Uh, then I have more space to create them for the family. So does one need any, like you said you could do it on a mat or on your bed, but do you need any special equipment for it? Or, or is it really just you and yourself in a comfortable spot? It's just you and yourself in a comfortable spot. I mean, obviously to have you know, create an environment that promotes relaxation, quiet, dim the lights, perhaps an eye pillow if you want to get fancy, but you really don't need anything. I've never done it. Like I could explain how certain activities make me feel. Can you sort of, like, I know you have done it. So how does it feel to do yoga nidra? Obviously it's different for everybody and how we're going to describe it is, is incredibly different. So for those of us who perhaps have a hard time being still, maybe the first few moments can be a little bit challenging. So I think it's first surrendering that, you know, there's nothing to do. It is really all about being. And once we kind of get past and indulge that notion, well, then you have the opportunity to just be taken on a journey. And so you get to utilize the creative mind. Part of Yoga Nidra is to invoke um, visualization of something that makes you feel relaxed, makes you feel good, makes you feel safe, makes you feel free. And so how the meditation practice interacts with you will hopefully allow you to feel relaxed, and allows you, allows you to feel soft, allows you to feel like, you know, I have the ability to create this different kind, like different kinds of 
feelings in my body. I don't have to go on a vacation or be on a beach or, right, I can actually feel empowered that you are able to create these feelings just by, you know, indulging in this meditative practice. So I, I have, I'm going to ask you a hard question now. Sure. And that is, you've led this before. Has anybody fallen asleep on you while doing this? Because I feel like I might fall asleep if I did this. Absolutely. Yoga Nidra. So Nidra actually means sleep. And oh, does it really? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, Nidra means sleep. So maybe we should have started with that. But it actually, and there's kind of this misnomer about it, meaning that it's not actually for sleep. I mean, if you do fall asleep, that is wonderful. And generally, when I am doing Yoga Nidra with my family, we do it before bed sure. because we're just yeah. we're trying to just downgrade everybody's system so we can move into that space. Yoga Nidra offers you the opportunity to improve your sleep, alleviate stress, gain clarity, gain focus, and just create more presence within your life. Are there any practices that are collateral to Yoga Nidra that you think might be useful? What do you mean by collateral? Well, like, in addition to doing Yoga Nidra, you would benefit from doing X or Y. So, by doing a Yoga Nidra practice, you are able to help release any stress and anxiety that you may have, especially these days. Mm -hmm. Do you find that people like start at Yoga Nidra and then transition into the more physical forms of yoga or vice versa? I find that Yoga Nidra is a practice that you're attracted to if you are able to perhaps investigate more slower forms of yoga. Like yin yoga and, and stuff like that. And yin restorative. yoga, restorative yoga. Yeah. There's not a, a huge leap from those kinds of practices. And if somebody likes the idea of what you're talking about, but maybe isn't ready for yoga nidra, are there any other sort of practices that you would recommend? Like we just touched upon restorative, but is there anything else? I mean, meditation is a form of yoga nidra, but you know, different by nature. Yoga meditation is for is to help us gain clarity and gain focus, and just to help us more in our life. And yoga nidra is not a far cry from it, but there's just there's no uh, real focus to it. Right? It is just about to help relax the body and opportunity to just come into the presence of your life. Well, I think, you know, we're still at a phase in our society with the shutdown and everything where this sounds like it would be a pretty good practice for people to consider. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is a restorative practice to your whole being. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me, Jamie. That was Sari Nisker-Fox. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss the fifth flavor profile, umami, on the tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Hi, I'm Jamie Buston. I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show and podcast, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's a health and wellness publication distributed with the Globe and Mail to each and every home subscriber in Toronto west of Victoria Park. 
and it can be found free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA. You can learn more about Tonic Magazine at tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, check out the new look of Tonic Magazine. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. My next guest, Shauna Lindzen, is a dietitian and nutritionist. She's a program developer and nutrition leader at Wellspring Cancer Support Network and enjoys seeing clients virtually and doing corporate wellness lectures. She runs practical cooking demonstrations that combine scientific knowledge with culinary education. Her demonstrations are unique, informative, delicious, and a lot of fun. And you can find a list of her nutrition classes and recipes at shaunalindzen.com. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Jamie. So we all know about tastes such as sweet and hot and like creamy and fatty and acidic, but there is a fifth taste that's out there, right? Yes, exactly. So the four that you mentioned are the typical taste that everyone can identify. So the fifth taste is something called umami, and it's a Japanese word. Yes. And some people have heard of it, some people haven't. And if people have heard of the word, they may not know what it is. So what is it? So it is actually the savory taste. So it's a, it's a pleasant, savory taste that have the characteristics of actually cooked meats or yes. broths. And it's something that's really hard to describe. And typically, like fermented foods have it. Um, monosodium glutamate, remember MSG from the 80s, Chinese food? Yep. That's actually the taste. It's called glutamate. And by itself, it's not palatable. But when you mix it with other flavors, you can get the wow factor. It isn't just meat, though. Sometimes, uh, like a sharp taste like from a, an aged Parmesan or, exactly. even, or, or yes. even mushrooms can provide an umami flavor or like shiitakes have exactly. a lot, of, a lot so, of umami. Yeah, so things like soy sauce, yeah. um, nutritional yeast, Parmesan cheese, as you mentioned, and like cheese rinds, tomato paste, Worcestershire sauce because it has the anchovy taste. I was going to say anchovies are a good source too. <laughs> yeah, miso, seaweed, they contribute to the umami flavor. So... When you're eating something, like if I say to you, think about putting some miso on to your tongue. Yeah. How do you think you would react to that? I don't know if I, I'm, I'm not a fan of miso on its own. I think the, the difficulty with umami is people confuse it for salt, right? Because, yes. because a lot of the umami flavoring is akin to salt, but it isn't quite yes. salt. So um, nutritionally and medically, if you need to reduce your salt, it's actually a really good thing to use umami flavors because then you don't put as much salt in the end product. You get the flavor, you get the salty flavor, but you need less of it. Mm -hmm. I always think of umami as it deepens the flavor. Like if you were going to create a band to play music, Mm -hmm. you would want to include bass because the bass kind of like it gets down, it vibrates, and it, and it kind of adds depth to mm-hmm. the music. And in the same way, umami adds depth to the flavor profile. Like a tuba. Like yeah. I'm thinking of like the big brass um, Or a cello. Or a cello. I've actually played the cello and the tuba. Well, there you go. <laughs> when I was younger. So I got really deep down with the music and the flavor. So 
it's interesting if you use that as an analogy, because when you have an orchestra, it's also an orchestra of flavors that you're mixing and you're matching. And I love that. It's like a band and like a music band. So if you have the salty, the sour, the sweet, the bitter, and you want to even put it up to the next level, that's when you put in the umami flavor, like the nutritional yeast or the Parmesan or the tomato. And when you think something's missing when you're um, eating something or you're recipe creating, typically we think salt or pepper. But no, it's usually that deeper flavor or something acidic. Yeah, I was going to say it's, it usually it either needs some umami or it needs a squeeze of lemon. That's usually exactly. my theory. Yeah, Or a citrus zest, yeah, exactly. like lemon, lime, orange, even pomelo zest, things like that. And that's going to add to the deepness of the flavor. And it's really going to elevate your food. So I know you're up on this. What's trending now in terms of umami? I know what I cook with, but I'm interested to hear what people are using and what they're doing. Yeah. So people are getting more comfortable with like making desserts, for instance, like a miso caramel Mm -hmm. sauce. If you go to the trendy ice cream shops, like in the summer, because we're probably not going now to a lot of ice cream shops, you see miso caramel, you see them playing with the flavors. And usually people who are foodies and have, you know, are adventurous will try an ice cream like that. So the miso and caramel. The other thing that's trending, and I think I saw this in the New York Times a few weeks ago, is miso mixed with butter. So taking the miso and putting it with the richness of butter, because butter almost has a sweet taste to it if you don't have the salt to it. Because usually if you have salted butter, all you taste is salt. You don't taste the sweet component. So making miso into kind of a creamy, fudgy, it's kind of the dessert realm of incorporating the miso into it. I've used miso with butter, for example, with richer fishes, like a black cod, mm-hmm. which usually yeah. does go with miso, right? So yeah, it's, it's beautiful. It, yeah. And it's interesting because with black cod, usually it's very balanced with something acidic, something yeah. creamy. So, and the mouthfeel is usually creamy on that. Other things that are trending would be adding soya sauce to fruit pairings, like for sauces and marinades. So it's interesting, like the soya sauce would be the umami and the fruit would be something kind of sour or sweet. So that's a really nice combination. And the other thing would be, last month we talked about sweet potatoes. So mixing mushrooms with sweet potatoes or squash is trending. Yeah, that I understand. That makes total sense to me Mm -hmm. because, as you said before, it balances out the sweet. Exactly. Or you could also use like sea vegetables, like the kombu seaweed, which is really umami. Like that's like the definition of umami. And you can mix that with sweet things like dried fruits, like cherries or raisins. And you can make salads with that. Or you can make, as you like to do, energy bowls. And you can mix. That's a way of when you're developing an energy bowl. it's It's a way of mixing the textures and the flavors. And you just have to kind of think about what flavors you want and then inject the umami into it. Yeah. In your pantry, what do you, what's your go-to ingredients if you're adding umami? Oh, so I have to admit, and some people don't like this, fish sauce, yep. I think is just rocks uh, like a, a baby bok choy. 
The other day I made, I sautéed baby bok choy, and I used to think, oh, I should add some um, tamari, some, you know, like low-sodium soy sauce into this. And now I don't add any tamari. I just go straight for the fish sauce, and I mix that with garlic and ginger, and it really brings out a wonderful flavor. You just have to ignore the smell when you open up the bottle. So we've we've been making roasted chicken with anchovies. Yes, that's beautiful. With capers and garlic. Oh, and, guess and, what? Is that a New York Times? I just, a few days ago, saw a recipe for exactly that with olives, capers, yeah. anchovies. And I'm not sure, was there is there butter in it? Well, you could. Uh, yeah. This is, you sear the skin and the anchovies break down beautifully in the oil, right? So it, it creates a sauce with the chicken juices that meld with the oil. And then you finish it with lemon. And, and uh, if you have a good a crusty bread, it's fantastic. But the umami flavor, you know, you wouldn't think of putting fish with chicken because really anchovies are just little fish. Mm-hmm. But it brings out the flavor in the chicken just beautifully. And I would highly recommend if people think, ooh, anchovies, like I don't yeah. like those. I would highly recommend to try cooking with capers, anchovies, that type of thing to give you a flavor, it, it, or olives. Like some yeah. people really don't like olives, but if you cook with them and then you don't eat them, but you get the essence of them, you really can enhance the flavor of, of lots of food, like poultry. All right. Well, now that we're on this jag, what else would you like to see people doing for the coming year? What other? How else can they play with the umami flavor? I want people to experiment with the different sauces and miso and not be afraid of it. And it's really easy to find nowadays. So try, look up miso or look up fish sauce or nutritional yeast and mix it with different things that are, you know, in your cupboard and you feel comfortable with. So don't try it all at once. But another one, actually, now that I think about it, are the dehydrated mushrooms. So those you can actually use as like a dry rub, like you can mix it with nutritional yeast or Parmesan cheese, put some seasoning into that. I know there's a restaurant in Toronto most restaurants, all, all restaurants are closed now. They had a starter where they put powdered mushrooms on popcorn, and I thought that was really fun. Yeah, I've got an easy one. If you want to take baby steps, if you're making a soup, like a bean soup mm-hmm. or a minestrone, I will take the Parmesan cheese rinds. Yes. So you don't need to throw them away. And most good Italian cooks will tell you there's tremendous value and flavor in those. If yes. you put it into the soup, while you're cooking it, it will impart a huge depth of flavor. Unbelievable. Excellent. I have a minestrone, and if people want to take cooking classes with me, I can teach them how to make the minestrone, and I use a Parmesan rind, and I actually have a freezer full of it. I have so much Parmesan rind if you, rind if you ever need well, my, my to borrow di- My dirty secret is I will actually eat the rind after it's cooked. And oh, I'm, really? Yeah. My family knows. Like, I don't take it, I don't take it out. I will actually eat the rind after it's cooked. It's so out. salty, though. You must need a lot of water after that. No, it's delicious. You're, yeah, it really dead. is. It's fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Will you come back again next month? Absolutely. Thank you, Jamie. 
Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Joel Thuna, Dr. Aaron Boynton, Sari Nisker-Fox, and Shauna Lindzen. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us on The Tonic Talk Show on Instagram or Facebook. For great articles written by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. The March-April issue is now available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to every home subscriber in Toronto west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Next week on the show, we'll discuss top tips for spring cleaning, women in medicine, and whether pornography is actually bad for you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.